0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to See from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com.
1: We just thought we'd like to let you know that you're listening to a multi-award winning podcast. At the end of June, we picked up the PPA Podcast of the Year Award 2020. And earlier this year, We won Best Specialist Podcast in the Publisher Podcast Awards. So thanks for your support, and we hope that you'll continue listening to History Extra. We have big plans for new podcasts ahead. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we're talking about the Picts, the culture that flourished in what's now Scotland in the first millennium AD. Professor Gordon Noble and Dr Nick Evans, both of Aberdeen University, are experts on the topic and our content director David Musgrove called them to find out more.
0: Today we're talking about the, the, the Picts, uh, and I am joined by two experts on the subject. We've got Professor Gordon Noble and uh, Dr. Nicholas Evans, who are both uh, researchers at the University of Aberdeen. Gordon's an archaeologist, and Nick is a historian, so uh, we're going to get two interesting perspectives on the topic. And they've written a book, The King in the North, The Pictish Realm of Fortrio and K. and they're also involved with a couple of research projects, uh, one called The Northern Picts and one called... Comparative Kingship, the Early Medieval Kingdoms of Northern Britain and Ireland. So, um, we've got two chaps here who know a lot about the topic. Uh, listeners may not be aware of what the picks are at all, so we will be getting into that and explaining exactly what's what. But first up, perhaps we should just uh, uh, talk about the research you've been doing and uh, the current state of play in Pictish study. So can you tell us a little bit about these projects you've been doing uh, and whether they are born out of a, a sort of a, a resurgence in interest in uh, in this topic at the moment? Um, Nick, do you want to kick off with that? Well,
2: uh, I think there's always been a fascination with the Picts, uh, as they regarded as a lost people who disappeared, and I think that's always going to be tantalising, uh, and there's always been uh, interest in the symbol stones and in Pictish language and as ancestors of uh, people in Scotland today, but I, I think really things have uh, so sort of taken on a sort of resurgence of interest in the subject and from a historical side that started in, I suppose, as early as the 1980s. There were very few people interested, well, who were working on that subject uh, at that point, only a few researchers at universities and outside. And People started at that time, uh, Alfred Smith and also the an archaeological site, Leslie Olcott, to really challenge the view of the Picts as being quite a sort of backward, isolated and strange people on the margins of Europe. And so since then, things have sort of gradually snowballed, I suppose, as uh, more research has been done uh, on the, the written sources. And then as the archaeology is really where things have changed, I think, dramatically uh, too. Uh, and I think people are looking at it in different ways, looking at place names, studies, looking at landscape and just really being critical uh, about the sources. And I think that's got people really interested. Uh, but as I say, I think it's the uh, the, the archaeology that Gordon and others have been doing that has really been the, the real changing uh, thing that's really changed things uh, as well.
0: OK, uh, so, so a big interdisciplinary sort of approach. Gordon, what's what's been happening in archaeology?
3: Um, Well, I think, as Nick says, there's been a real resurgence in in research, um, partly prompted by um, some of the historical views of of the subject, uh, for example, Alex Wolfe's moving of the Kingdom of Fortru um, further north which we'll come on to later Um, and that was uh, part of the inspiration for our Northern Picts project and now the Comparative Kingship project uh, at the University of Aberdeen Uh, and basically what those projects are are about is really trying to identify archaeological sites from this time period Um, which doesn't sound difficult but actually we know probably more from an archaeological perspective about the Neolithic than we do about the Pictish period in scotland you know there's very few sites actually known a handful of settlements really in lowland scotland for example um so really our project has been about um uh using an archaeological lens to look at things like the the famous Pictish symbol stones um, and using archaeological techniques to uncover more sites and more more knowledge about this time period. So we've been looking at Pictish forts, Pictish settlements, uh, looking at uh, metalwork hordes, um, rediscovering part of the Gold Cross Horde with the National Museum, Uh, for example, um, working on major Pictish power centres, places like Rhiney and Burghead. So we've really been trying to um, just use our resources um, in a way that really hadn't been um, done before in terms of trying to provide uh, a new perspective on the Picts and and find new sites from this time period. Um, And... You know, it has been successful, I think, to a large degree in in finding new Pictish sites and understanding more about Pictish uh, culture. So there's been lots of research-led excavations. And what our projects are also trying to do is really um, increase public understanding of of this topic. So we have things like social media pages um, and working with local groups like the Rhiney Woman to run lots of community events uh, around the Pictish period and excavations we've been doing.
0: Okay, brilliant. So I'm just going to try and uh, describe what I understand of, of what the term picks mean, and then you can you can uh, tell me what where, what I've got wrong, and we can try and move on from there. So what i what i take from it is that pix is a term uh, that she used to describe the people in northern and eastern scotland from the uh, sort of the end of the 3rd century ad for another half a millennium or so up towards the, the 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 10th century or thereabouts and i suppose the question of whether this is a historical term to describe a period or a description of a specific ethnic grouping or a kingdom or kingdoms is kind of what we will hopefully explore a bit. But what have I, what have I got wrong so far in that uh, in that opening description?
3: Well, I think this is definitely one for Nick.
0: <laughs> I actually don't think you got much at all wrong in that. <laughs> I think that no, seems
2: uh, quite, uh, quite correct. Uh, okay. I, well, I'm trying to think of a anything. Um, but I, I would say that Although it's useful as a term for a time period, there were definitely people being called uh, Picts or Picti in Latin as, as it found is found in the sources so in in that sense, it's a term that is ethnic uh, and has connotations so it that gives it the the structure and the geographical bounds to to the area that we call Pictish as well.
0: Okay, brilliant. So, so let's let's just go back to the start then. Nick, can you talk about the origin of the word picks? And we've got, the, the, as you said, the first reference to "picti." Um, I think comes uh, in the late third century uh, from classical authors. Um, and I think in your book you say something like it's best interpreted as a new collective term for the generally larger polities that had superseded smaller population groups referenced in earlier roman sources so just drop us into where we are uh in 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 time and space with that well uh as
2: you say the, the first reference is in the late third uh, century ad and it appears in a praise poem which is dated to around ad 297 or 298 uh which is written for Constantius Chlorus, the father of the later emperor Constantine. And it is then used in the later Roman period in the 4th and 5th centuries as a term for people attacking the empire. So it seems to be used as a broad term uh, for people living north of the Roman frontier in Britain. Before the, third, the late 3rd century, it, there are other terms being used. So the Romans wrote about Britons. Uh, they also write about the Caledoni as either a, a single group or a collective group. And in the second century AD, the uh, Greek writer Ptolemy, the the geographer, he describes a number of different uh, polities in northern Britain, about 14 in the area that is later in the medieval period, Pictish. So what we see is in the middle of the second century AD, at the time when the Romans are uh, at their sort of heights uh, in, in Britain, at the Antonine War, they have a number of different groups. And then we have around 200 AD, it's already gone down to perhaps about two. Uh, Dio Cassius writes about a time when the Romans are again having uh, conflict against the people to the north, that they have been amalgamated into two groups, the Maetai living around the Firth of Forth, around Stirling, and then a group beyond them, the Caledones again, who presumably inhabited the highlands and some of the lowlands to the north. So there's there's already consolidation, and then about just under 100 years later, we get the Picts appearing as a term. And It does seem as if, although they may not be completely united under a single political entity as they, we still get references to multiple groups. But there's there are not so many. So it does seem as if it's a c- broad collective cultural term for uh, these people who are already there. It's not a new group that's appeared or migrated to the area. It's a pre-existing group. Uh, but they seem to be being called that because it means painted. It's a term for the barbaric people to the north, who are now much more distinctive compared to the people in the Roman province uh, in what's now England and Wales that are regarded by the Romans as civilized and cultured. And they use this term painted because the people to the north are naked uh, warriors with uh, tattoos all over themselves. And so they've shown that these people are barbaric uh, and that is where the term originates uh, from. Uh, so it's a term that's created by the Romans for people outside, but it's then adopted by the people in the north themselves as a term for that uh, so they want to use as a badge of honour, I suppose.
0: Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's othering by the Romans. It's, it's pointing out uh, people beyond the, the Roman boundaries. And you're saying it, it was... Probably a pejorative term of some sort from from the Romans to describe people who were uh, uncivilized outside the boundaries of, of, of civilization. But but it sounds like it was kind of reclaimed by the Picts themselves. That's roughly roughly where we're at. Yeah, I,
2: I think so. Um... Presumably the Picts, uh, the people to the north, would have had a lot of contact, uh, not just being killed by the Romans, but diplomatic, uh, to some extent trade, gift exchange, uh, as people fighting in the Roman army sometimes, as slaves. And that would have caused sufficient contact for the term to then get transferred and used by the people themselves, as some of them learned Latin uh, and had to deal with Romans and other peoples on the borders too.
0: And, and do we imagine from what you're saying that they were they were actually tattooed and painted, or is that just a, a sort of a general Roman term for people who who aren't uh, who who aren't civilized who are barbaric
2: it's rather difficult to know that um, we certainly in the medieval period don't have any reference to tattooing among the Picts so and the Romans and Greeks tended to regard people on the borders as being these sort of savages. Who uh, uh, The idea of savages often involves people being naked and having uh, re- weird practices. So it's difficult to know if they're transferring ideas that are generic to the Picts. But certainly uh, the Herodian writing in the 3rd century AD about what's happening around 200 AD, it, among them in the north, says that they are uh, have designs tattooed on themselves of animals and beasts so it's not something that comes completely out of the blue uh at least in terms of how the pix people in the north are being described
0: okay but but it's definitely not a whole bunch of people called pics turning out from somewhere else and suddenly arriving in scotland it's just a rebranding of the of the people who were there why? Why would that be the case? Why would the Romans decide that they needed a new name for those people? Was there was there something else going on? Um, I don't know. Maybe this this might be something that Gordon has has some views on. Whether there were sort of archaeological changes that we can recognise at this period.
3: Um, well, there's certainly archaeological changes. Um, unfortunately, that's not always for the better, as far as archaeologists are concerned. Um, you know, at the same time, these uh, new historical uh, sources are referring to a to a new identity that the Picts is actually the same time period in which we have a real fall-off in archaeological evidence. So from round about the 2nd, 3rd century AD, we get an end of uh, the roundhouse tradition. Um, so roundhouses were being built in in, in Scotland and Northern Britain from uh, the Bronze Age or even uh, late Neolithic onwards. And that seems to end um, some sometime in the 2nd or 3rd century, and settlement patterns become much harder uh, to identify, and that's one of the problems of studying the picks from an archaeological perspective is, is that we still only have, you know, a few dozen settlements really um, from this time period, um, and we see those changes right across the areas that become part of Pickland. So you, the brock settlements in in the northern Isles seem to be um, abandoned, or the brock towers are, and you get uh, these more um, difficult to understand villages developing round about the brocks. Um, you get uh, uh, fortified settlements, so things like hill forts and promontory forts re-emerging, and that is one of the uh, site types that we are able to in- identify, but again, in quite small numbers. Um, so during the Roman Iron Age, there's very few hill forts constructed or, or occupied as far as we can see, um, but uh, sites like Dunacare, which is one of our Northern picks sites, um, shows that some of these were beginning to emerge in that 3rd, 4th century uh, context, and that's really exciting in terms of, you know, they are the type of sites that might be used um, on the coast for raiding the, the Empire, or at least um, being in touch with the, with the Empire uh, on on the doorstep uh, of the Picts. Um, but there's broader changes as well. You get cemeteries re-emerging. Um, so after um, a very scanty archaeological record from the Iron Age for burial, you get field cemeteries re-emerging again, probably in that third, fourth, um, certainly by the fifth century uh, AD. Um, so those those are things like um, square barrows and round barrows. Um, not huge numbers of monuments, so again, it seems to be quite a restricted uh, practice. Um, and you also get the emergence of uh, inscribed stones, Um most famously amongst the Picts, the the symbol stones. Uh, And these seem to be some sort of naming tradition associated with um, elite identities. So you can see that in this time period, in that 3rd, 4th century, and certainly by the 5th, 6th century, you get a whole series of different types of new archaeological um, sites emerging, but again, quite low numbers, and that's why. Um, projects like ours and Mark Carver's at Port Mahomick, finding sites from this time period is really important in terms of understanding more about the Picts given uh, the limited historical sources that we do have
0: Okay, but, but am, I, am I right in thinking there's nothing you wouldn't specifically say there's, there's some sort of categorical um, change in anything either in his, historical sources or archaeological sources that goes with the the commencement of the use of the term Pict, picked, Picty
3: Well, I mean, it's definitely a very noticeable change in archaeological record um, in terms of, you know, uh a, a, a difference to what came before. Um, the problem is identifying exactly what uh, what is replacing things like the roundhouse tradition. Um, so again, you know, you can literally count in one hand the numbers of settlements we have from the third, fourth centuries in the lowland um, lowland Scotland. Um, so it do, does look like they're adopting new forms of architecture, things like. Um, uh, rectangular houses um, and using forms of architecture that are quite hard to recover archaeologically, so using things like turf walls, cruck frames, that kind of thing um, so that that makes it difficult to to identify these sites later on. you know they get plowed out um, and um, you know removed by modern ar- agriculture so that 's where things like uh, hill forts and places that haven 't been cultivated are quite important in terms of actually Revealing the types of you know uh, settlement that the picks were were living living uh, within.
0: Okay, um, and you mentioned the the symbol stones uh, j- just in your previous answer. And if if people know much about the Picts, they might be aware of these these rather fabulous stones that uh, that are associated with the culture. So um, they they start to develop around about this period as well.
3: Well, um I mean, that's a huge area of debate. Um you know, the symbol stones are very iconic uh, amongst the Picts. So there's, you know, over 200 uh, stone monuments um across uh, eastern and northern Scotland with these symbols. Um they are include abstract designs and they include animal designs. Um and the the classic monument tends to be um using paired symbols, so t- two symbols. Um, and these are, um, as I say, found right across Scotland and they've been very um, enigmatic and added to the kind of mystery of the pics as you, as you can imagine. Um, so we don't understand what they mean, they seem to be relating to identities of some kind so in the later stones um, you can see that uh, these pair symbols often appear next to individuals so they're telling you something about their name or their rank or their status. Um, our best bet is some sort of naming tradition with the the symbols meaning, um, you know, essentially representing a sound and telling us uh, the name of of that person. At least that's our best bet um, for interpreting these things. And then other major aspect of the symbols is, you know, what date did they emerge? And that's um, been hard to um, really tackle. You know, how do you date a stone monument? Uh, And that's where um, archaeology comes in. You know, we can't at the moment, directly date the the carvings or or the stone um, on which they're carved to themselves. But what we can do is date the context in which they're found. Um, So again, um, prior to our work, people wouldn't have really countenanced an early origin for this back in the late Roman period, uh, late Roman Iron Age. But um, our work at Dunacare has maybe suggested that that could well have been the case. So Danakair um, uh, today is a, is a tiny sea stack just off the coast of um, Aberdeenshire um, near uh, Donauter Castle, which is a later documented uh, Pictish site. Um, and it's just a tiny sea stack today. Um, but in the 19th century, they found five cymbal stones from the site, and they were found by use from the local village uh, who were told by a local gravedigger that there was gold buried on top of the sea stack so off they went with their spades in the you know early 19th century climbed on the sea stack at great danger to themselves, started digging, didn't find any gold, uh, which must have been incredibly disappointing. Uh, But what they did find was these stones, and they're quite um, rough and ready symbol stones compared to what we'll see see at uh, sites like Rhiney, which we'll talk about later. Um, And uh, they uh, apparently found these in uh, a low stone wall around the edge of the stack, and they threw them into the sea. Um, being used to the day, um, not knowing at that time really what they were. And it was only in later years that people recovered them. So our project in 2015 uh, went to the site uh, with a a professional climber, got on top, uh, and we excavated. And we essentially found what the use found. We found the low stone wall, which is actually part of a rampart going around the edge of the stack, and buildings inside, uh, very rare buildings of this time period. Um an amazing thing about the site is that it, it's its date It actually dates from the second to the uh, uh late fourth century a d so exactly in the time period the picks are first mentioned in in those uh Roman sources um and again, we can't date the stones directly, but the rampart uh, we have dated, um, and we think that's where the stones came from, and that dates to the 3rd, 4th century. So again, in that late Roman period, when when the uh, uh, Romans are mentioning the Picts as an identity. So it seems highly likely to us that uh, the stones are emerging, uh, the symbol tradition is emerging in that late Roman period. And it seems most likely that some sort of um, naming tradition, written tradition, whatever you want to call it, um, it seems the most likely context for it emerging in terms of being in contact with literate cultures um, of the Romans and, and Latin inscriptions and the like. Uh, but the Picts, uh, like the Scandinavians with their runes and the Irish with their augum, are doing their own thing. They're creating their own um, symbolic uh, system to represent ideas and language and names uh, and identities.
0: Okay. Um, but but Nick, th- this isn't... a they're not a historical source. There's no. It's not a, a language specifically that you can um, that you can read and interpret.
2: No, no. I mean, it'd be great to be able to connect the symbols to particular individuals and know exactly how they were being, um, inter- you know, what they actually meant. I, I presume Gordon's right that they even mean whole names or or parts of names, I would suspect whole names. And so you could, if you had some sort of Rosetta Stone, uh, get uh, the exact meaning, but we don't have that. So I presume people would have interpreted them in language, but we don't know what the key is
0: to it. Okay, so... Up up till this point, we've had other people talking about the Picts, the 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 Romans. Essentially, is there any point where we actually get the Picts speaking in their own voices in in a language in 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 written text that we uh, that we can interrogate?
2: There's only one text that we have that has. Pictish origins that is more than just maybe a word or two, and that is the Pictish king lists. They survive in later copies from the period from about 1300 onwards in Ireland and Scotland. And they go back to a Pictish source of the ninth century, which tells us about the king's, uh, supposedly going back into the first millennium BC Uh, and so that's the only statement that we have that seems to have origins and we can reconstruct back to the Pictish period uh, that text uh, and uh, get some idea of what they thought about themselves. They did think of themselves as Picts and they thought of themselves as uh, the kingdom that uh, was from Fife up to at least Caveness, uh, and it, it, it's mainly a text in Latin but has names that are uh, partly Celtic closest to uh, the language spoken by the British that's Closest to modern Welsh, I suppose, and uh, so we get some idea there of some of their ideas about kingship and also some of the cultural connections. There's a lot of influence from in the ninth century version uh, from uh, the Gaelic speaking world, uh, which is another Celtic language uh, now spoken in. Ireland and in the Isle of Man and also in Western Scotland, so we get that sort of influence already. So that's that's all we have. We have a few words and names of people, uh, but most of what we have, even in the medieval period, is written by outsiders, unfortunately. But we get get enough to know that uh, to get a reasonable amount from those sources, uh, at least. Uh, so they're one of the better documented peoples that are only spoken of by outsiders, fortunately. Uh.
0: So so essentially it's a pretty tough gig being a historian of, of the Picts.
2: Uh, yes, you're dealing with a lot of fragments. And we fortunately have uh, the Irish Chronicles, which were partly written in the 6th to early 8th century on Iona, on the west coast of Scotland. And that tells us quite a lot of events that involve the Picts as well as involving them and their neighbours, but it tends to be quite sparse and we get very little actually about social customs from these sources. Uh, So we are reliant on that side a lot for for our evidence from either comparative uh, work or from looking at Anglo-Saxons, Irish so on, and also from the archaeology.
1: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: So it's definitely exciting to get all this new archaeological evidence and um, exciting to get all this new dating evidence, but we're very far from catching up with the likes of the archaeological record of the Anglo-Saxons or contemporary Irish society. Um, So I think there's still a long way to go in terms of our archaeological understanding of this time period. (laughs)
1: This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. 4 out of 5 employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ziprecruiter.com/extra. That's ziprecruiter.com/extra.
0: So, so uh, jogging on a bit in, in, into the period, so we've sort of talked about where they came from and, and where the starting point is. Moving on into the second half of the first uh, millennium, Gordon, you've talked about a rich ideological language of rulership uh, being consolidated at major power centres. So we are getting the growth of, of, of of kingdoms or a kingdom you'll have to explain which which it is um and we're getting getting you know an, uh, some sort of organized structure i suppose we need to know they're not the only people in scotland uh, 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 what, what we understand of scotland so um nick talks about gaelic there people so so who's who's where and and what's happening and you, and you mentioned uh the, the the sculpture the the the, uh, the man with the axe and how that may be some sort of uh, you know link to paganism um and, and you use the word pagan where, where does Christianity fit in here? Is there any evidence of Christianity in in the uh, in the archaeological uh, um, work that you've done on these sites? Uh,
3: not in the Rhiney Valley. There is there is a church um, dedicated to Saint Luag, who um, is an early Christian saint, um, but a lot of those um, co- uh, coinings of 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 uh, those dedications may well be quite late in Aberdeenshire, maybe eleventh, twelfth century. Um, and we've done very survey work around about the church um, at Riney and not found any evidence of any earlier enclosure. Um, and the site is abandoned. Uh, certainly the Bar Flat site seems to be abandoned by the mid-6th century. Um, so it may well have been abandoned before um, people in the area were, were Christian. They're probably aware of, of Christians elsewhere. Um, and certainly, some, some of the picks were Christian by this time period, which is something more um, that uh, Nick can t- uh, tell us about.
0: Yeah, over, over to you, Nick. Where, where does where does Christianity fit into the story? When do, when do the Pictish people start to take on Christianity and what do we know about it?
2: Well, uh, I think the with this, you're having to deal with sort of layers of later sort of rewriting of history that you get in the medieval period in which they associate the conversion of people with saints like St. Saint Columba uh, of Iona and also uh, St. Ninian, who's of Whithorn and supposed to... Uh, convert the southern Picts. And most of that is is later sort of fabrication to uh, explain later church situations. Uh, So we have virtually nothing about how people uh, in the Pictish areas were were converted. Uh, What we do know is that it's definitely taken place by the end of the 7th century. In the early 7th century, we have some evidence for... Churches, monasteries in a couple of places in Pictland, and my view is is probably would be more positive than quite a lot of scholars have been about the uh, date of Christianity. I would be quite willing to suggest that, like in Ireland, there were Christian missionaries active from the fifth century even before. uh, Just taking the the Roman practices at the time of trying to expand Christianity. So I think you've probably got quite a mixed situation in, in places like R- Rhine. They probably, as, as Gordon say, knew about Christianity, and there may well have been some Christians there already. Uh, but the interaction is one of these things that's really difficult to tell unless we have some direct evidence. And from what I can gather from the archaeological evidence, at that point, you're not likely to get Christian cemeteries and that much, archaeologically speaking, that would indicate there were Christians. So I'm willing to be more in favour of, from just from the contextual evidence, that so there were some Christians. Uh, certainly, you would have Christianity there by the 7th century. No one, like the Anglo-Saxons, when they're attacking them, suggests that they are anything other than Christian and they would have uh, tried to denounce pagan Customs, if they saw them. So, I think it, it's it's really difficult to tell. But I think there's, um, I think it's a long, long process, uh, and one which we really haven't got that much idea of the details. But I wouldn't be surprised if we, at some point, found there was something Christian around uh, in that area. But uh, I, I think it's something that's an ongoing process we just don't have a huge amount of evidence for it but that sounds really bad from a historian <laughs> have to say, yeah
0: shall we move on from uh, from dietary habits and 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 social tendencies to back to politics um your the book that you've talked about uh it uses the name of, of the of the kingdom of uh fortru um which become when when does that start to be an entity first first up who can who can tell me that well,
2: we get first references to Fortu in as with an F at the start in the late seventh century, but we do also get reference to their predecessor, uh, the sort of ancestor population group, the Virturiones in the Roman period in the late fourth century in the text by uh, the Res Gestae by Ammianus Marcellinus, as one of the two major Pictish groups. So they seem to be one example of continuity. Uh, and so they are uh, a group that was thought to be based around the southern Pictish area, around in the areas that are now Perthshire, Stirlingshire, uh, Clackmannanshire. But uh, Alex Wolfe, as I think Gordon mentioned earlier, in 2005 was able to argue, I think justifiably, that actually Fortu was much further north, around the Murray Firth. And so that's completely transformed the whole idea of Pictish political geography. And so it seems what happens in the late 7th century is, is that when there are Northumbrians dominating most of Pictland, uh, the kingdom of Fortune may be subordinate, but then in the Battle of Nechtensmere in 685 AD, they defeat the Northumbrians, kill the king of the Northumbrians called Edgbert, and set up themselves as the kings of the wider Pictish area, uh, and then become the dominant kingdom uh, and overkings of the Picts uh, for the rest of the Pictish period. So the, it's an important region that becomes the sort of foundation of the of the wider kingship uh, that we see in the in the sources, uh, like Bede's uh, ecclesiastical history and other texts
0: okay and just just as a reminder so the northumbrians that's the the anglo-saxon kingdom uh to the south okay so uh, so after next as, you, as uh, you've outlined nick we've got this uh sort of the, the Picts are, are able to um to to stand on their own two feet in their own kingdom and and the the uh, Northumbrians aren't uh aren't able to, to to lay the law on them or whatever they were trying to do so what are the dynamics going on uh as we progress through the uh first millennium who's 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 in charge where and uh, uh and what sort of identities are we are we finding well we have
2: uh, the the picts who were in the 8th century uh pretty much the dominant power north of the the of forth so you have the northumbrians still in the south uh and you have the britons around glasgow and you have the Gaels in the west but the, the the kingdom of the Picts is able to expand and in the 730s, 740s conquers Dalriada as well, uh, and so is is pretty powerful there. Its relationships with the Britons and the Anglo Saxons is not always peaceful, but there's a lot of interchange between all the groups in, in, in what is now Scotland, uh, and so it's there's. Quite a few cases where we have exchanged culturally. So, the Pictish king uh, Nechtan in the 710s invites the abbot Chelfriff of Mugweym of Jarrow to, for instance, give him some guidance on the Easter uh, date of the Easter um, each year Um, and that sort of thing. So, there's and there's I think more archaeological evidence for exchange of in art styles and and technology and so on. So, you get uh, quite a lot of interaction that is peaceful. There's not fixed boundaries between these groups, uh, and there's uh, yeah. So, uh, it's it's one where there's picks of powerful before the Vikings come along, and uh, and but in in sort of uh, interactive way. There's Gaelic. Uh, settlement going on probably into Pictland uh quite considerably in the 7th 8th centuries and ninth centuries so there it's not just uh, a single Pictish versus Gaelic uh, divide uh, and politically as the Picts are dominant over the Gaelic area in the west there seems to be a sort of assimilation of the elites in the west as well
0: um okay so uh uh where are we? So so I suppose what what we need to know is what sort of society is developing uh in the in the second half of the uh, of the first millennium. So what do we know about what the Picts are doing and uh, and what sort of uh what sort of society they live in?
3: Well, um, from an archaeological perspective, uh, when we get that uh, over kingship developing in the 7th century is quite an interesting one archaeologically, again, because that seems to coincide with developments in things like uh, elite settlements um, and and fortified settlements. So one of the classic site types, again, are are forts, hill forts. um, And it seems to be round about to the end of the 6th century into the 7th century that you get a development of sites like um, the so-called nuclear forts, which are basically um, citadel forts with uh, complex um, outer enclosures um, emerging. So quite quite large defended uh, settlements again. Um, and that seems to be um, a developed phase of, of the first millennium, uh, again happening somewhere around about the 7th century. So it seems to broadly coincide with um, the uh, greater power of the Pictish kingdoms as represented in in historical sources um, and as represented by the emergence of that over over kingship so again it's interesting to try and um, look at the archaeological record and the historical record in tandem to see see how uh, these are developing through time. And we are finding those synergies in in the sources and the archaeological record uh, for the same time period. So it might be, uh, for example, you know, that sites like Rhiney seem to end sometime in the 6th century maybe going on into the 7th century and it could be the expansion of the Kingdom of Fortru that really ends sites like uh, Rhiney these, um, the, these centres uh, f- further further east uh, so again it's it's questions like that and that we can begin to tackle through our growing archaeological evidence and being able to relate that to uh, the historical sources
0: Okay uh so we'd we'd better have sort of moved towards uh, towards the end a bit um at, at some point we stop talking about the picks um and they disappear so when when do we stop hearing about the picks and let's let's try and understand why they might not uh, survive so uh Nick, do you want to give us the the historical line on that?
2: The last reference to the pics that we get is usually in the late ninth century. From nine hundred AD onwards, we start getting the kingdom being called the Kingdom of Alba, and it becomes Gaelic in culture and language. And pictures terms like fortu go as well. So it seems as if what's happening is that there's been a sort of tipping point uh, in which uh, the uh, culture has shifted to a Gaelic one. Uh, that seems to be uh, partly because of increasing uh, Gaelic settlement. Also, that the elite is becoming Gaelicized through the church as well, and that uh, I think causes a shift. At the same time, you have the Vikings attacking and uh, settling in the west and in the north of Scotland. In Areas that were controlled by the Picts and also occupying Pictland at the same time as the uh, Vikings are also being involved in England at the time of Alfred the Great. So this seems to probably cause a crisis that, uh, arguably, is resolved partly through adopting a new identity, uh, this end identity of the Kingdom of Alba, and rejecting Pictish identity in favour of something that's more Gaelic uh, and to some extent new, but using a lot of the same foundations that have been there in Pictish times. It's basically the Pictish polity being uh, rebranded and shifting to favouring an element that have been growing in importance, the Gaelic element, uh, and we see Pictish identity and language fading out.
0: Thanks, Nick. What, what, what do you understand, Gordon, of the of the demise of the Picts, if that's the... It's probably not the right word or really, anything,
3: Well, I think, um, as Nick says, you know, this is a major period of of transformation. Um, it's uh, the period in which Viking attacks are causing havoc throughout the Anglo-Saxon uh, areas. And there's a whole series of battles the Picts are involved in, in terms of uh, fighting the Vikings, Um uh, major kings of the, of the picks and leaders being killed by the Vikings, so I think that's definitely going to be <clears throat> one major factor we have to um, uh, account for in in this time period. Um, and certainly you can see that places like Port Mahomick argued to come to an end due to um, a major Viking raid uh, sometime in, in, in the 9th century. Um, and places like Burghead, a, a secular power centre, um, the archaeological record seems to come to an abrupt uh, halt sometime in uh, the late 9th century or probably more likely the early 10th century. Um, and that was uh, a major power centre the Picts uh, in in the northern territories, so if you've got sites like that going out of uh, out of use, and and the the people um, who are in charge of those sites and being killed or having to move elsewhere. That's going to obviously cause major disruptions within uh, the Pictish uh, areas. Um, and really the, the way to respond to that is to to transform and that seems to be what's happening in that uh, ninth and 10th uh, uh, century context where you get some sort of merging of uh, Picts and, and Gales to create this uh, kingdom of Alba. And it's probably, uh, as Nick says, it's a, an elite change, a change at the top. It probably didn't mean a huge amount um, to the lower levels in society in terms of how things uh, would have changed. Um, And certainly, as as, uh, Nick says, uh, Gaelic seems to come to the fore in terms of language and and, and customs. Uh, And that's a change that's likely to have been um, going back centuries with the growing um, influence of the church. Um, so I think it's a really fascinating time period, both historically and, and archaeologically. And again, it's not a period archaeologically that's had much attention in mainland Scotland as opposed to uh, the Northern Isles. So that's, again, something we'd we'd like to try and change.
0: OK, so to wrap up and go back to the, what I was talking about at the start, which was what's picks actually means, and uh, and uh, I was just picking up on uh, uh, an in our time episode that you were in, Gordon. Actually, uh, with uh, presented by Melvin Bragg, and one of the other contributors, uh, Glasgow University's Catherine Forsyth, um, uh, said something along the lines of that basically the picks is 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 a, is a time period. It's like the Victorian period. So you wouldn't say that you know what happened to the Victorians? Where did they go? It's not. It's just you moved on from that to to the next uh, to the next period. Is that? Um, is that right? Is that is that is that the way we should see this this Pictish period?
3: You want to go first, Nick?
2: Um, I think uh, I would regard it as being more than just a time period because I do think there's good evidence that there's an identity there that's quite strong. Uh, I think I think her idea that, that is there's a lot of continuity from the, the people who are Picts and not People who just appear there and the people who they don't just disappear afterwards, I think is right so in that sense I, I agree with a lot of what her thinking is, uh, and I do think we shouldn't go overboard with just saying there's set idea of the pits that's there from the start and continues for the whole period um, I think there's a lot of early uh, evidence for different identities and different local and regional identities too so Uh, I think we have to factor that in and not get completely bogged down in the idea of of, just there's being a set idea of who the picked are. Um, But I do think it is uh, more than just, uh, I suppose, a time period thing. (laughs) But I think I think she's on the right lines. I think though, uh, in in a lot of what her thinking is.
3: Yeah, I mean I think that's broadly right but uh, as Nick says there are there is more to it as well in terms of you know there was um, you know, a defined identity that uh, late Roman sources refer to as being Pictish and early medieval sources refer to being as Pictish and also seems to be um a language that was distinct from others in Scotland at the time as well. And that might be one of the uh, contributing factors to the end of the Picts as an identity is, is the the language is shifting and the language of the court becomes uh, Gaelic. Uh, so in order to explain that in later time periods, I, I guess it's a, an easy get out is to think of the picks as being um, destroyed or or killed um, in some big conspiracy, but in t- in terms of again uh, how things operated on the ground, um, it probably would have been relatively a little change for for most people. Um, and in terms of you know where that Pictish identity emerges from, um, y- you know there are lots of uh, fantastical origin myths about the, about the Picts and and where they came from, um, and that's where again archaeology might be able to play some role. So. Um, Um, Our our uh, researchers, Linus Flink and uh, lots of collaborators doing lots of new interesting genetic um, work looking at uh, Pictus burials and uh, the genetic uh, inheritance um, of the individuals uh, buried in, in, in these graves. Um, still early days there, but as far as we can see, you know, the, the uh, individuals buried in these uh, Pictish monuments were broadly um, uh, aligned with the, the genetic uh, evidence you would get from Iron Age and Roman Iron, Iron Age in, in Northern Britain. So again, it's uh, it's more about uh, political change than, than uh, 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 um, uh, uh, genetic or... A, uh, ethnic change um and it's really piecing together those historical sources and the archaeological evidence that's really i think really um exciting about uh, picture studies um at the moment
0: okay and just to just to wrap up then you you sort of i think gordon you, at the start you talked about the pics are a lost people and that being one of the sort of you know, the, the the beautiful enig- enigmas of them um so they i suppose they were kind of lost for a while people Maybe didn't take as much interest in in the picks and 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 the culture uh, as as they might have done but now as as you say, people like yourself, Nick and other researchers are, are doing a lot to 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 bring them into sharper focus so does what does that mean for the sort of the legacy of this period does it is it now are they now becoming a found people and 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 where where's it going to go from here do you suppose what's what what are we going to find out about them
3: yeah i mean it's interesting I think um uh, I think they still are a lost people in, in many respects. Um, although we are beginning to enri- enrich in that archaeological record, um, we're still going from a very low base level. So again, you know, in terms of archaeological sites on the ground, we have hundreds, thousands of archaeological sites from the Neolithic or Bronze Age, for example, um, and, you know, you're again talking about a few dozen in uh, the lowlands of, of, of Scotland for the Pictish period. So it's definitely exciting to get all this new archaeological evidence and um, exciting to get all this new dating evidence but we're very far from catching up with the likes of the archaeological record of the anglo-saxons or contemporary irish society um so i think there's still a long way to go in terms of our archaeological understanding of this time period um, and uh, in terms of historical sources, Nick can say more, but again we're dealing with a relatively slim record compared to many uh, contemporary uh, societies.
0: Nick, last word for you?
2: Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with what Gordon says. I think there's some written evidence that it's really problematic for especially ordinary life and uh, i think there's we are making advances but it's and particularly looking at new approaches combining with archaeology so i think that's where we can make a lot of uh, of progress um, but i think uh, i think we're, we're still working from a lower level but hopefully we will we'll be able to get enough to really start to say things in the next decades yeah and through the primarily the archaeological work
0: yeah Okay, well, I've certainly found out a a lot about this lost people. So, um, uh, Professor Gordon Noble, uh, Dr Nicholas Evans, thank you very much for your time and for uh, giving us chapter and verse on the Picts. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're
3: welcome. Thanks.
1: That was Gordon Noble and Nick Evans. To find Dave Mudsgrove's blog covering all things medieval, including the Picts, go to historyextra.com and search for blog. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Pateman. In our next podcast tomorrow, Ian McInnes will be answering your questions on the Scottish Wars of Independence.